So this morning I will be um, walking through this psalm and the real desire that I have that you would come to the end of it and you would be able to say with confidence and expectation, search me, O God. And so to begin with, Psalm 139 is a majestic passage of Scripture that every person could and should read through slowly, line by line, and turn into a personal prayer to God. Take this psalm and learn to pray this psalm back to God. To enter personally into the soul of this song and prayer of David is a mighty spiritual exercise that will deepen and shape the God consciousness of any person who is able to sink down into the truths here contained. There's so much truth in this psalm that will be so helpful to you if you will do this exercise. In fact, I will boast that no matter where you are in relationship to God, to dig deep and shovel scoop by scoop into the soil of Psalm 139 will be like setting the footers of your house into the ground for a solid foundation to weather the storms of life. If you are here today searching for God, then I want to help you dig some footers for a well-grounded foundation. So point number one, God's intimate knowledge of everything about you. God has intimate knowledge of everything about you. So God knows far more about you than any other person does. God knows more about you than you know about yourself. In Jeremiah 17, 9 though, there's a warning about our self-knowledge and it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? So I have a tendency to be deceived about my own understanding of myself. And therefore, if this is true, then I cannot trust my own opinion of myself. So on one hand, pride regularly makes me think too highly of myself, or Satan may daily whisper that I am of no value at all. And the psalm, this particular psalm, is a wonderful remedy to all distortions of my true condition. So God has infinite and perfect knowledge about you. There is not even the slightest bit of information that God can gain, for He is already in full possession of every detail about you. So, the psalmist says this so clearly, O Lord, You have searched me and know me. And in this case, you do not understand, and in case you do not understand how far is the reach of God's knowledge of you, the Lord goes on in this psalm and elaborates further. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. In case you wonder if God knows your thoughts, He makes it very clear. You discern my thoughts from afar. He doesn't even have to be in the room. Well, He's always in the room. But it just says, Lord, there's no place where you don't know all of my thoughts. So some people think that other people... Uh, typically other people only know our thoughts if we communicate them, if we share them, we start talking aloud. But God says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So there's no place to escape this knowledge that God has of me. It's thorough, complete. So no matter what you're thinking, no matter what you have rummaging around in your mind, even your darkest and most vile thoughts, God knows it completely down to the nitty-gritty details 
things that you would never let anyone else know, and you try to hide, and perhaps do hide, God knows already. So, I think that um, that's why this is amazing information. On one hand, though, it's terrifying. Someone might say, it's, I'm terrified that anyone would know my secret thoughts, even God. But David, on the other hand, thought it was wonderful. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So I'll explain a little bit later why David would think this would be so wonderful. I had someone just last week, I was talking to them about this, and one lady said, well, that's not very comforting to me to know that God knows my thoughts. The human tendency is to hide all information about ourselves that we do not want others to know. So we carry secrets around and bury them deep into the closets and attic space of our lives, but they do not go away. They are like demons that hide in our house and taunt us. And God wants us to be honest and to deal with everything from our past. No more pretending. No more dark secrets between you and your Savior. God wants there to be no wall, no fear that there's something that you're going to uncover that will expose that God can't love you anymore because now that He knows everything about you, God is the only person that can know you as He does and love you as He does. If you doubt that God knows your darkest secrets, then listen carefully to the next section. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely, the darkness. People are always trying to hide things in the darkness. Surely the darkness will cover me like I can hide there and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is light with you. So here's the, con the conclusion. You cannot run or hide anything from God. Adam and Eve thought they might hide their sins by running from God. And they thought they might cover their sins by using fig leaves. An immoral woman of Samaria thought if she just changed the subject to Jesus and the conversation that she might get a little breather. But instead, Jesus said to her, you have had lots of men and the man you are with now is not your husband. A man tried to boast to Jesus as if Jesus didn't know his secret idolatry. And the man said that he had kept all the law of God. And Jesus said, well, then if that's true then sell all that you have and give your money away. And Jesus already knows everything about you. There were religious leaders who were sometimes shocked to reveal that as the Bible said, Jesus already knew their thoughts and revealed to them information that could not be known other than His all knowledge. So I'm not sure if you like this idea or not about God's intimate knowledge of you, but it's based upon your relationship with Him. If you have the kind of a relationship in Jesus Christ and you trust in the gospel of Jesus, then you're not afraid of what God knows and you actually desire for God to know everything in order that everything may be covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. 
You have so much confidence in the blood of Christ to atone for your sin that you have no fear of God knowing all your sin because that's what's covered. It's all covered under... It displays the power of the righteousness of Jesus. In this world, we're afraid of the power uh, and the evil of our sinfulness and that someone will not love us. But God says, I already knew that when I went to the cross for you. I knew the depth of your depravity and therefore I want you to esteem the value of the blood and righteousness of my son. His righteousness can cover all sin. Therefore, there's no reason to hide our sin from God unless we have a problem and we lack confidence in the power of the gospel. Our hiding of sin displays our lack of confidence in the thorough, life-changing, pardon, chain-breaking power of Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful thing operating together. So, Here's what I want to say secondly. God's intimate involvement in designing and forming you. He knows everything about you, but He also formed you and designed you. You are who you are because God made you. That's where your value comes from. So I have a question. How much do you value human life? What do you think of other people and their value? How do you value people of other races? People with different skin color? People who speak different languages? Do you value Russians, Ukrainians, Northerners, Southerners? Do you value Dallas Cowboy fans? I don't know, I'm really stretching this thing out there. Do you value country music fans? Do you value children, the elderly, the poor? People who are loud, people who are quiet, people who are different, people who are odd, which just simply means not like you. People from out of town, people who drive pickup trucks or Mercedes or, God forbid, electric cars or vegans or Republicans. Do you have a basic code, an ethic, a moral position on human worth and dignity of all human beings? Is there a value that you assign to every person, no matter their age, their past, their abilities, or inabilities? Or do you believe that some people are inherently of greater value, and therefore some people are therefore of lesser value than other people? Can some people be discarded or exterminated is genocide ever right? Are there people you ought to hate and have a right to abort or should feel no guilt in killing or removing or euthanizing? Psalm 139 declares the value of every single human being from the moment of conception. God has designed for the continuation of human life on earth to occur when a man and a woman have sexual relations and the seed of life meets up with an eager egg and they form a personal relationship that is the beginning of human life, a little person, a little tiny person named Zygote. This little person takes a trip into the baby parlor to spend nine months getting ready for a grand introduction to the family. And the question is this. 
how much value does baby Ziggy or Zygote have? How valuable is this tiny little person? Every person in this room, every person that has ever existed was once a baby Ziggy. How much dignity and worth and value has God assigned to Ziggy? Were you already you all the way back when you were Ziggy? So what does the Bible reveal? In Psalm 139, it says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance at the earliest development. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Like this blows my mind, God, that you think of me in this way. If I, how precious are your thoughts, how vast the sum of them. Like, how can God have these amazing thoughts of me? There must be something of value to me. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So human value begins right there. It begins with Ziggy. Formed by God at conception is a human life, a human being knitted by God in a mother's womb. Every human being can rejoice and shout for joy with the dignity and value of being personally and purposefully shaped by God like a skilled potter shaping a lump of clay into something beautiful and valuable. All God's womb works are intricately woven as they were, as were you, and thus you are a work of God, not only worthy to be praised by others, but capable of giving praise yourself to God. Herein lies the true and inescapable calling upon your life. You are made by God and for God. You will never reach your potential until you reach for God. Your life will find meaning only when you align your create with your Creator's design. Thus, this longing for personal discovery takes us back to Genesis 1.27 when God formed the first two human beings. He made them and every succeeding human being with something called the Imago Dei, Latin for image of God. God said, let us make man, male and female, in our image, after our likeness. He didn't say this about any other created being, but he said this about man and man and woman, male and female, in our image, after our likeness. So God created them in his image, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God said, have babies and fill the earth with my image. That's how the image of God begins to fill the earth as people procreate and a child as an image bearer of God begins to do the very thing God said to do is to fill the earth with his image bearers. The Imago Dei, the image of God is like 
a tattoo with permanent ink upon the soul of every human being beginning at the very conception. At the earliest moment of human life is the imprint of God, the assignment of worth and value beyond all worldly treasures was assigned to us, not as we accumulate worldly treasures, but because we are made in the image of God. Our value is not based on what we acquire from the world. It's what we acquire from God. Thus God and God alone is the giver and taker of human life. The unjust taking of human life is murder. And a great crime against God has instilled when someone takes or destroys the image of God. A person created in the Imago Dei. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the glory of man as the image bearer of God. In Genesis 3, we learn of the fall of man morally, spiritually, and physically as a result of sin and rejection of God's will. The entire rest of the Bible is the unfolding of the rescue mission of God where God sends His only Son to be sacrificed to make a way of salvation and redemption for all who call upon the Lord. The gospel of God is that the indelible image, the, the indelible imago Dei is still alive and well in a sinful soul so that no matter at what stage of life a person may be in, this is so important for you to get this. The imago Dei, the image of God, is written upon every human being, no matter what stage of life they are in, no matter what sins a person has compiled against God, and no matter what sins, no matter, uh, no matter what they have done, God is ready to restore into fellowship any who will confess their sins and seek forgiveness and restoration based upon the righteous atoning blood of the Son of God. Some people believe that they are, that salvation is available to them based upon what they have not done. In other words, if you're not bad enough, God is interested in you. That's not the case. Everyone is bad. The point is that God is interested in you because you bear His image. And no matter what baggage you bring with you, He still wants to restore that image to its fullness and life. There's two possible responses available to you and to me. One is... To receive God, the other is to reject God. Those are the two basic responses. One is to run from God, the other is to run to God. One is to put up a wall in your life between you and God, the other is to tear the wall down and run to God through Jesus Christ. So here is, this is important, the wicked remain the wicked, not because they have sinned, and not because they have sinned more than the righteous. They remain the wicked because of their posture against God. It's not their offense to God. It's their posture against God. The wicked are those who reject God, who resent God, oppose God, hate God, 
It is not the degree of their sinfulness so much as it is their opposition to God. It is not their record of transgressions for Jesus is fully capable to deal with that. Jesus can remove that and clear that up. It is their disposition against God that determines their position with God. They simply refuse to bow to God. They refuse to acknowledge their offense to God and they will not confess their sins and seek forgiveness. Therefore, they cannot and will not admit their wrongs and therefore they do not seek God for the full measure of pardon that is available in the gospel. So it's not their sinfulness and what they've done. It's their unwillingness to own up to what they've done and seek God. So it's an attitude. It's not the weight of your sin. It's the unwillingness to lay that sin before God at the, gospel, at the cross. Psalm 139, David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemy. This would be one of those psalms that is sometimes, or a portion of a psalm that is sometimes referred to as an imprecatory psalm, uh, praying down a curse. It's very important that we step back and understand what David is saying because this is very difficult stuff. What is God saying here and why is David praying such prayers and ought I ever to pray such a prayer? Where is love and grace and kindness and what about love your enemies? Like what is going on here? And I would present to you that I think this is what is going on. David is praying not so much against individuals as he is praying against willful opposition and rebellion to God. David, in my estimation, is in essence saying, God, please end the rebellion. Please end wickedness. Please stop Satan and his filthy, poisonous assault against the throne of Christ Jesus. Lord, bring down that great serpent and that seething dragon. I join, Lord, in opposition to the great harlot and the son of perdition. Your kingdom come, your will be done. David is praying against those who refuse to turn to God because he knows that disaster is the result of not turning to God. So this is their total opposite response to God. A, a total opposite response to God is this. It is to receive God. It is to desire God. Someone says, what do I do? Where do I start? You turn to God. You desire Him. Pursue Him. It is to love and adore and set your heart upon God. It's to hear the gospel and say how wonderful upon hearing the good news. It sounds too good to be true. How could God love one like me? So sinful. I have such a record of transgressions. Transgressions. So many previous sins. So many violations of God's law to answer for, to account for. Fearful of the day of judgment because I am guilty. And yet He has declared a complete and absolute pardon to me based upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus. 
that Jesus will give His righteousness to me, the sinner. I am the same as the wicked. I have the same criminal record, the same crimes, the same background, the same attitude. But you will give the cleansing power to me. You, Lord, will expunge my record Is this true? How can it be? I thought of an old hymn that goes like this. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God should die for me? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Tis mercy all immense and free. Oh, praise my God. It reaches me. The conclusion is this. It seems to me that there is but one thing left to do, and it is memorably stated in the final two verses of this psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So my counsel to you is open your heart up entirely to God today, right here and now. God wants to provide total healing that will require total honesty to surrender every part of your past and every sin against God. Even if you are a believer, you must regularly tell God that you are ready to repent of anything that He will reveal to you that is a block and hindrance to walking in harmony with your Savior. In a moment, we will have a song of response. But before we do, we would like to demonstrate how the Imago Dei, the image of God, influences and directs all of our ministries. We have selected a few areas to highlight, but this same mindset must guide all our dealings with all ages and all types of people. We are in the restoration business, proclaiming the good news that all image bearers of God are being summoned by the King to return to the Father and enter into the joy of salvation through Jesus Christ. After several examples of Imago Day, we will close out in a song. And at that time, pour out your heart to God. If you have not believed in Jesus unto salvation, then bring your heart to Him. If you have secret sins, which all of us do, then pray the closing two verses of Psalm 139 from this day forward until the Lord takes you home. in the nursery um, and we see the image of God reflected in the babies and our web kids through their unique personalities and the ways that they have a desire for relationship. We do Bible stories with the little babies and um, it's just beautiful to see how even in infancy they see God's word and they see it through songs and stories and play And when Psalm 139 says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, it is very evident in the abilities of his little babies. In our children's ministry, Imago Dei, the the belief that we are image bearers of God, is at the center of what we teach. We teach children that in the beginning was God, and he created us to bear his image and live for his glory. This gives children a purpose, an identity, and belonging. 
When children understand this countercultural idea, they see themselves as valuable and loved, and they begin to view others in the same light. We believe this truth of Imago Dei can revolutionize a child's entire path and spur them to a powerful life of service in God's kingdom. For our student ministry, our knowledge that all are created in the image of God means three things. First, that every student, regardless of their race, their gender, whether it's rejected or embraced, their upbringing, their mental or physical state, their personality, their economic status, their behavior, their moral standards. These all are worthy of pursuit, time, love, and compassion. Second, these all, whether good or bad, are desperate for us to bring the gospel to them where they are just as Jesus did that for us. And third, every student has the capacity to glorify God in extraordinary ways when Christ takes a hold of them. Therefore, they must be equipped and empowered to serve God and his church. And I'm going to talk to you about Imago Dei and our big house ministry. Like Scott mentioned earlier, this Latin phrase has its origins in Genesis 1.27, where God created man in his own image. This is the first mention of man, and this is how humankind is defined and differentiated from all other creation. This does not change after the fall. In the New Testament, the scripture continues to teach that all humans have inherent value, as evidenced by Jesus' life and teachings. In a culture which marginalized women, children, and persons with disabilities, Jesus' interactions with the marginalized personified God's love for all of his image bearers. Think of how many times he heals the blind, the lame, and the sick. In Luke 14, 12 through 14, Jesus gives the parable of the great feast. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the disabled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is such a powerful passage here in John 9, 1 through 3. As he passed, he saw a blind man from birth. Again, here is Jesus showing love for all of God's image bearers. He didn't just pass this man. He saw this man. And the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is the reason why our big house ministry exists, because we believe that all children are made in the image of God. All children need to be loved, befriended, and ministered to like all the other image bearers in this body. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 23, compels believers to establish a community that's defined by something other than convenience, 
comfort or favoritism. Our theology is totally off base if we consider some members of our body as more important than any others. Did you know that it's estimated that 80 to 85% of churches do not have any level of special needs ministry, yet 15% of the world live with some type of disability? Only 5 to 10% of the world's persons with disability are effectively reached with the gospel, making the disability community one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. So how are we at Webster trying to reach this population and minister to all of God's image bearers? Big House Ministry offers buddies to those children that need extra help to attend the Web Kids Sunday morning classes. On Sunday at 9, we also have a Big House Discipleship class, specifically designed for students who need Bible curriculum presented in a different way. This is offered in our sensory room. We also have buddies available for Wednesday night, Web Kids classes, and for parents' night out. So prayerfully consider being part of our big house ministry. We have some wonderful college students who give a lot of their time to serve in this ministry, but there are times when they aren't on campus and we could use some extra help. Pray for many families to find their way to our church. Pray for space needed to keep up with the growth in our children's ministry. Pray that we would be open to serve, befriend, and minister to all of God's image bearers that he chooses to send us. And like John said in chapter 9, you might just see the works of God displayed right here at Webster. Thank you.